Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. My name is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, and uh, joining me today is my co-host, Jim Marty, uh, from lovely Longmont, Colorado. Jim, how are you doing? Doing very good. Uh, in the middle of uh, March here, it's officially spring, but it doesn't feel like it. Um, things are good in Colorado, although, you know, we did, of course, have that horrific shooting yesterday, which we're all, you know, down in the dumps about. Very sad. I but uh, we'll get through it and, and, and move on. Shame for all those families, of course. Anyway, uh, we got some good guests today, and we got uh, other things to talk about music-wise, uh, live shows coming back. and We do. Uh, we have a, a wonderful guest who we'll be getting to in a minute, Matthew Chewy Smith. He is uh, chief executive officer and founder of a company called Also Organics, which is a personal wellness products company that's based in Nashville. Uh, we'll be talking to Chewy about that. We'll be talking to Chewy about other things that he's done uh, in the hemp and CBD market. Uh, but Jim, you know, you know as well as I do that at the end of the day, we're all about music. And uh, one of the amazing things about our guest today is the connections that he's made in the music industry. And uh, he's worked with some of the greatest jam bands out there. He's, he's you know, rubbed elbows with some uh, legendary musicians. And uh, we'll really have a lot to be talking with him about on that uh, and we'll get to Chewy in one minute. Just on some other news that I want to touch on uh, while we're waiting for our third co-host, Rob Hunt, to arrive. I don't know if you saw this or not, Jim. I'm from Evanston, Illinois, and my little community here made huge news the other day, uh, national and I think maybe even international news, becoming the first governmental entity in the United States to formally approve a reparations plan. And uh, the, the Evanston City Council, by a vote of eight to one, voted to approve a reparations plan that's been in the works for the better part of a year now. Um, and uh, it's going to be for the benefit of African-American residents of the city. And there, there's a lot of details of the plan that are, that are interesting. Some of them are still being debated and worked out. But not only can I say that I'm, I'm proud to be a resident of Evanston, Illinois, uh, and at this historic moment, but even more to the point, uh, the way that this entire program is going to be funded is from the city of Evanston's receipt of sales taxes from the adult use marijuana dispensaries that are now located in Evanston. So this is just another example of the adult use marijuana industry, far from being the scourge of society that so many of people have, you know, predicted it might be, is in fact uh, the industry that's going to help, you know, fund uh, a major step forward in this country that, you know, I think can only be seen as, as, a, as a positive move and one that could hopefully, you know, go a long way towards uh, helping to repair some of the issues that we've seen today. And although we're not a political show and we don't have to swing too far over into that, I think it's just worth noting uh, significantly that, uh, uh, that this is a positive role for mar uh, legal marijuana to play. And uh, it just speaks to all the good things that can come from having, um, you know, an adult use program that has proper regulations set up and uh, participants in the program who understand and respect the rules. But, you know, in the case of Evanston, a local municipality uh, that instead of fighting it is not only welcoming it, but, you know, really taking the ball and running with it. And uh, it, it's kind of a nice thing to see. Well, along those lines, I've been doing some uh, work and uh, online meetings with the Black Cannabis Equity Initiative. And I was on a Zoom call with about 40 people from the Social Equity Program in New Jersey. They all got to tell their stories. Everybody got 10 minutes over a two hour period. I would say, you know, there was only a few of us that were not black. 
And so many of the people in their 10 minutes got to tell their story of how they got to go to jail. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting programs going around the country. Uh, like Illinois, New Jersey's gonna give points on applications for social equity applicants. Just to finish on the social equity, uh, they were talking about um, you know initiatives in New Jersey to get records expunged. Right. And I was able to share with them our Colorado experience. Uh, it's not all that easy. And as a lawyer, you would understand this. Some of these court records from the 70s and 80s were on paper. Right. They can't find the records to expunge them. Right. Yep. We, we had the same problem in Illinois because the Illinois social equity provision does call for expungement of people convicted of misdemeanor and low-level felony marijuana crimes if there's no violence involved and, you know, no minors or anything like that. Uh, but we've we've run into the same problem because the state put the burden on the individuals to come up with the paperwork necessary to get the expungement. And a lot of times they the paperwork's nowhere to be found, whether coincidentally or not, but it's been very, very frustrating. And there's been a big push to just go further and, and just issue blanket pardons for anyone so that it, it, they, they ultimately get to the uh, the effect that they're trying to do without without making it too difficult for any one person. But yeah, the, the, the whole notion of social equity, I think, is, is, a, is a welcomed addition uh, you know, to the cannabis industry. And it, it, it's good for the industry. It's good for the country. And I'm really glad to see it happening. The other thing I wanted to mention really quickly before we uh, uh, jump over to Chewy uh, is, I don't know if you saw this or not, Jim, but just yesterday, there was a jury verdict that came down from the Southern District of New York Federal Court uh, resulting in the conviction of two businessmen, and they were uh, convicted for assisting in a plan to let a California marijuana company called Ease, E-A-Z-E, -E, process credit card transactions without getting flagged. And apparently they did it uh, by making misrepresentations to certain financial institutions, um, but they were caught and they were prosecuted, and their defense was not only was nobody hurt, but the financial institutions which were now claiming that they were put at great risk actually made money on the transactions because they were the processors. Nevertheless, the jury convicted them and uh, now they're waiting for sentencing, uh, but they processed over $150 million of transactions for this company that refers to itself as the Uber of pot. And I just think that this is gonna be very interesting to see what the judge does in terms of what kind of penalties get issued here. Because the truth of the matter is we all know that credit cards are the future of this industry and we're really getting to the point where it's silly for credit cards not to be involved anymore. And, you know, just like we punished people for selling marijuana and put them in jail and now we're selling marijuana legally, are we about to put people in jail for something that, you know, maybe within a matter of months might wind up being very legal and very commonplace? And when you look at the numbers that are involved, how can you avoid it? Illinois in January of this year had 89 million in adult use sales. I mean, you know, our numbers keep going up month after month. That's too much cash floating around. Wouldn't you agree with that, Jim? Oh, yes. It's only a matter of time, but it it could be a while. Um, yeah, that case you're talking about, I believe they had um, told MasterCard and Visa they were a clothing store because, in fact, they did sell some hats and, and T-shirts and things. But the other piece of it was it's the issuing bank that is going to cause you your legal problems. Um, you know, MasterCard and Visa, they'll shut you down. The banks will prosecute you for miscoding you, what line of business you're in. That's a felony, and that's what happened here. Yep. So I guess, you know, for other people, it's just a, you know, a cautionary tale. And, um, you know, hopefully for some uh, people, it's just a push to see if we can't get things worked out in Congress so that uh, this industry can conduct business as normal. And with that, I think we're at a, a good point to segue. I see we are joined uh, by our third co-host, Rob Hunt. Uh, Rob, 
welcome to the show and welcome back. Hope you had a nice vacation last week. We're glad to have you. Uh, thanks, Larry. It's good to be back. I uh, had a great vacation, and I'm up on site right now at Palomar Craft Canvas touring uh, their greenhouse, so 22,000 square feet of canopy with some of the, uh, the most fire product you can find in the California market. So it's been a, a good morning of touring greenhouses before I jump on a plane to head up to see a few extraction facilities in, uh, in northern uh, California. You're a busy man. Well, glad that you had the time to join us today. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, we have your good friend, uh, uh, Chewy Smith, with us, and we're ready to dive in and uh, have a little chat with him, so your timing is perfect. Um, glad you're here. And uh, Chewy, welcome to our show. The, the first initial question is, why Chewy? The, the long and the short of it is, my older brother couldn't say Matthew. He said Matthew, a dwarf to choo-choo. And by the time I was one, my dad was calling me Chewy, and it had stuck. And uh, I have legitimately tried to get away from it when I, in fact, uh, going to see you Boulder my freshman year, I tried to get all my professors to call me Matthew. And within the course of a couple months, it, it, it sort of merged back to Chewy. So I just, it just, you know, I've accepted it and it's part of who I am. Okay. Well, uh, welcome to the show. We're, we're happy to have you here. Uh, give you. us uh, 30 seconds of background, you know, on yourself, uh, where you came from, where you're at today, a little bit about also organics. And I'm sure after that, uh, the three of us will have plenty of questions for you. Yeah, thank you. Grew up in Salt Lake City, went to school at CU Boulder. Uh, upon graduating, started working for a record label called Sci Fidelity Records, which was started and owned by the String Cheese Incident. Uh, I realized after a year that running a record label was a horrible job, and I made a lateral transition out into tour managing. And over the course of, you know, nine years, uh, you know, tour managed or worked with uh, the String Cheese Incident, Keller Williams, uh, uh, you know, Fish. Uh, uh, ben Harper, Jack Johnson, uh, uh, Brian Wilson, G Love, Gray Boy All Stars, uh, Carl Denson, uh, and just had a great time as a you know uh, being out on the road. Uh, but that is a hard life to live, and I realized I was not long for that life, and so I, I took a step back and uh, and started a company called CID Entertainment and CID. Uh, designed, managed, and implemented VIP programs for almost every major music festival in North America, and then touring bands. And by the time we exited uh, or were acquired, we had 150 tours we were also overseeing. Uh, in the time, you know, I, th I, I then had a brief company after that, but uh, while all my non-competes were working and, and still active, I decided that I wanted to uh, explore something new. Uh, I'd been a, a, a passive investor uh, uh, with our dear friend here, Mr. Hunt, in both cannabis and hemp over the last dozen years. Uh, knew just enough to be dangerous through my <laughs> life uh, of, of cannabis and hemp. And, you know, I was a big proponent of medicinal cannabis, uh, you know, for, uh, for my whole life. Uh, but I have a 10-year-old uh, that has Asperger's. And we found great relief in good quality cannabinoids. Unfortunately, in Nashville, there aren't a lot of companies that are manufacturing them. That led me to, uh, you know, starting my own company, and I really set out to start a company that used organic ingredients that were non-GMO, that were manufactured uh, under good manufacturing practices in an EPA, FDA certified facility. Uh, just check all the different boxes. In fact, it's kosher certified as well. And so <laughs> also organics was born. 
Uh, we tried to use as little plastic in our uh, uh, packaging as possible, as many recycled uh, paper products as we possibly could, and just be good stewards of the environment while also making a real quality product that I would be you know, happy to give to any of my friends if they were giving to their children. Of course, we do have a kid CBD uh, tincture, uh, but the majority of the product line, 14 different SKUs is made for adults. And we launched on March 1st, 2020. Our office was then shut down on March 18th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I've yet to be back in my office since. So uh, it's been an interesting year for sure. We started out as a you know more retail focus and we've sort of turned into a, a, a direct to consumer online like a lot of brands have. And it's been a real interesting time for sure. And you know, we've made it. We are finally cash flow positive after a year. It's been a it's been a ride. Uh, but I think uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that weren't as fortunate to survive. Uh, and I think we're going to come out the other side and be stronger and better uh, because of it. So, uh, yeah, and I love the Grateful Dead, and I've seen a lot of shows with uh, Rob Hunt, and uh, still listen to him almost every day. Okay, that's wonderful. Oh, I will. Sorry, really quick, Larry. I do want to get back to the credit card processing. Our yeah. largest online uh, client that we had, which was Huckberry. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Huckberry. Uh, but they were carrying us as their exclusive CBD provider dropped us because of their credit card processor. Now, this is a company that exists online. They are in California. Massive amounts of monies run, run through them. And because of our small, tiny little account, they were going to shut them down as a business. So they had to drop us because they were selling CBD through their credit card processor. That, right. That's, that's the legal side of cannabis, and they're still trying to shut you down. That's crazy. Right. On your business also, Chewy, um, are you vertically integrated? Do you grow, extract, and have retail? Uh, so I myself do not. What I did, what I did, and you know, certainly with the help of great advisors uh, like Rob, uh, was I set out to just meet uh, as many people in the industry as I possibly could. And you know, I found a. What I learned very quickly was I was never going to grow organic hemp uh, as, as great as the guy that provides it to us in Oregon, nor was I ever going to figure out how to do a warm water ultrasound extraction like the guy in Sacramento. So I just went around and found all these people, including our manufacturer, and put every single person on the cap table. So now I'm partners with them. So technically, I don't handle any of that, but they're all business partners of mine. Uh, and so we've been able to, you know, lessen our costs, keep control of the supply chain and make sure everyone's sitting on the same side of the table, hopefully giving us a better chance of success as we move forward. And what are some of your best selling consumer products in CBD and CBG? Yeah, in fact, I will tell you our four, our top four, top five selling products are 25 milligram gummies, our thousand milligram pain salve, 1500 and thousand milligram tincture and our 50 milligram gel caps. And, uh, and we started seeing a real nice spike in lotion uh, over the last couple months. Uh, we've been pushing it from our end, but turns out that it really does take care of those dried chapped hands after using soap and uh, sanitizer all day long. So one of the reasons I invited Chewy to be on this podcast today is obviously not only does he have a huge knowledge of the Grateful Dead, but he's also worked with their artists that you can think of in the jam band community. And one of the things I thought might be fun to talk about today was to uh, discuss the influence the Grateful Dead has had on other bands in the jam band community. For sure. Obviously, you know, um, you know, uh, John Perry Barlow did a lot of the writing for String Cheese Instant as well. So there's a crossover between the Grateful Dead and 
the String Cheese uh, band uh, are huge Grateful Dead fans. And some of the other bands that Chewy's had a chance to work with as well have been big Grateful Dead fans. So, you know, Chewy, maybe you could jump in there and just talk perspective, how much, you know, the influence the Grateful Dead has had on, on other people in the industry uh, and the people you've had a chance to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Rob. Uh, well, I, I obviously, I think the Grateful Dead, when it comes to jam bands, has had a huge uh, influence on, if anything, with a jam band in the title, if you're in that category, you've somehow been influenced by the Grateful Dead. Uh, you mentioned John Perry Barlow. I was lucky enough to meet him in 1998. In 1999, he, don, he, he he put the title of my not-so-godfather on top of me, and I had a great relationship with him until his passing a few years ago. Uh, but, you know, I if I'm looking at just the jam band scene or bands in general that uh, the Grateful Dead had a huge impact on, you know, the, I think there's the very really obvious ones that I could run through really quick, which are Keller, Will, Keller Williams, Dave Matthews, Fish, String Cheese, J-Rad, John Mayer, Black Crows, Derek Trucks and the uh, Tedeschi band, Little Feet, Moe, Aquarium Rescue Unit, Government Mule, and anything with Warren in it, uh, Green Sky Bluegrass, North Mississippi All-Stars, Yonder Mountain, Billy Strings, Blind Melon, uh, OAR, Rusted Root, Wilco. But going beyond that is how people set up their set list production or touring as well. You know, having playing a completely different show every night was so unique to the Grateful Dead. So bands like, you know, Pearl Jam, Fish, Wilco, those other bands that, that have taken on that tradition and tried to set out doing that. Uh, bands that tour constantly or tour like the Grateful Dead because they sort of set that model as well. And also just the amount of production, uh, not to mention recording every single show. And that's from... You know, Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, Metallica, Jason Isbell, Fish, Wilco. I mean, there's so many bands that now record every single show. And the Dead were obviously the pioneers of that as well. Well, String Cheese to me is is a band that uh, I always loved. I was a deadhead from the early 1980s. So as a lot of these other bands were starting to come on the scene in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, you know, even including Fish, I, at the time, I was starting a new job, and I was getting married and having kids, and I just didn't have the bandwidth to expand out and, and you know, see all of these these other bands as much as I would have liked. But String Cheese always stood out for me because they, what I liked about them is they played the same type of music, but completely differently. They 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 used instruments that rock and roll bands don't typically use to watch Michael Kang rip out that electric violin and what he could do with it, you know, and the idea to just like Dave Matthews, right? That their lead guitar player sits there and he plays on a, on an acoustic guitar. It's like, you know, and you're thinking, Oh, come on, you guys are a jam band. You got to be like Trey and Jerry and have that, you know, rock in the electric. And, but it didn't matter. The sound was so wonderful. And in fact, I saw them, I was very lucky early on, a friend of mine really got hooked on them because he was a violin player and he was fascinated by Michael Kang. And so we went and we saw them here in Chicago at a little tiny place. It was called the uh, Skyline Stage down at Navy Pier. If, if the place held 500 people, I'd be surprised. It's not even really there anymore. They've like repurposed the space. But we saw them do a, a show there that was one of the greatest rock and roll shows I ever saw. And they just blew the house down. And for me, it was like eye-opening that here was a a jam band that wasn't the Grateful Dead, but I was getting that same kind of, you know, experience as if I was at a Dead show. It was, it was tremendous. Well, I think it was an easy transition for people to, you know, when Jerry died, if, you know, if you're out there sort of searching for a new scene or a new band, 
it was an easy transition for a lot of people because you know, like the dead, they played a lot of different genres and they're extremely well-crafted in, in multi-instrument performance. And, you know, it was a great community that they built and the people who were following them were diehards as well. And there was a lot of similarities between both of those scenes as well. And as Rob mentioned earlier, having John Barlow come in and start writing songs as well, it, it really, it had the you know, and nothing against any of the other amazing jam bands out there, but it really did have that sort of, to me, that closest feel of what that dead community represented. And I'm a, I was a huge fan and I've seen hundreds of fish shows and, you know, and, but it, it wasn't that same thing. It was its own thing. Uh, and so I think it was easy for people to transfer over from the, from the dead. transition because you know when, when fish took a hiatus that was when bonnaroo first got off the ground and obviously the whole string cheese crew and a lot of the fish crew and yourself you know went down there and really opened up that festival i know jim marty's been to that festival i think eight times i don't know if larry's been how many times but you know obviously i worked there with you and ran the vip with you there for a few years but you know when that first bonnaroo happened like it was a magical moment i feel the same way about the first electric forest when it was still rothbury you opened up a lot of these festivals i mean you were instrumental in in um wakarusa you're instrumental in, in bonnaroo i mean the festival scene that took off you know when string cheese was popping and fish was on hiatus maybe you can talk about that kind of moment in time that started around yeah well that was that, that i mean i don't remember a lot of it rob just to be clear <laughs> So, uh, but yes, amazing opportunities. The string cheese incident, I remember, you know, as a, a tour managing them, you know, having crowds around 3,000, 4,000, maybe 5,000, and overnight with fish, you know, taking their long hiatus, all of a sudden playing in front of eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people, you know, from one tour to the other. And of course, I have thought they deserve all of those accolades and more and think they should be that big today. Uh, but... Uh, what that did, it gave us the opportunity to come into those first year or two festivals in those early age and be a headliner band. And in order, and when you came in as a headliner band, you also got to sort of, you know, in the very first year, set some priorities or make some different demands. So, you know, the string cheese incident on the first Bonnaroo played a couple different sets and then they played a show with Keller Williams and they backed Keller Williams, which was an amazing late night show. I mean, that to me was one of the greatest shows. I've ever seen a Bonnaroo. I mean, it's, I mean, well, that's that, that may be stretching it, but it's you know for a first year, and you know obviously in those early days they were jam band festivals. Uh, Bonnaroo was built on all jam bands, and that's the way you know they got a hundred thousand people there, and and to come in, the community showed up, and it was overwhelming. And I remember it was. You know, I mean, there was just no security. There was backstage and front of stage might as well all been the same thing. It was just an absolute free for all and so much fun. Uh, and then we, we realized in the years preceding that how to actually, uh, you know, really truly uh, build a, an actual site that can handle 100,000 people. Uh, but it was fun to be a part of it as the tour manager for String Cheese, but also the guy who built the VIP program for the festival because I was sort of double dipping at that point in my life. Uh, and the only reason they asked me to be the VIP guy is because they liked the way that I treated them when they came out to stream cheese shows because we had great back, backstage green rooms. And they were like, hey, if you can take care of our VIPs and make them feel the same way you make us feel when we come to your shows, this idea is going to be successful. Come in, help us figure that out, build it. And then, you know, that led to Wakarusa, 
and uh, Langerado, which was, you know, only a short-lived festival. Uh, and then eventually that, you know, sort of led to a business which turned into creating VIPs for Coachella and Lala and ACL and all that kind of stuff as well. Unfortunately, those festivals not very heavy on the string cheese jam band vibe for the most part. But I will say, if you're talking about other bands keeping the dead vibe alive, you know, they are big on Hiss Golden Messenger and Sleater Kinney and Kamasi Washington, uh, My Morning Jacket, those types of bands that, you know, you can see a direct parallel or a straight line between the Grateful Dead and those artists, which aren't necessarily jam band oriented. Sure. Sure. No, that first Bonnaroo was, was really something. Ooh, sure uh, the was. traffic going in. Do you remember the traffic? Well, I was fortunate enough to never have to actually sit in the traffic because I was I was coming through the back door the whole time. But I do remember on the radio. I mean, it was you know thirty six hours to get those cars in and shut down the interstate. You know, I mean, there's people that were sitting on the side of the road for a day before they were able to get in. Uh, so what we did, we got stuck in that traffic. And uh, I banged a U-turn with my travel trailer right in that traffic and headed back to Murfreesboro. Yeah. And looked, looked at a map, and we came in through a little town in Tennessee called Viola. Yep. Yeah. yeah you, you actually figured it out. That's amazing. Right. There was enough people that figured out how it all worked into that main entrance. And, you know, it wasn't just the main highway. If you were savvy enough back in the day, you could take a dozen different routes to cut off the traffic. Yep. And the first Bonnaroo, I believe it was the first time I ever saw a silent disco. <laughs> and one last memory is the last song was uh, Phil Lesh and Friends with special guest Bob Weir doing Tennessee Jet. Oh, yeah. And my 14-year-old son and I walked out of Bonnaroo with that song playing as we walked out. How awesome. Well, to me, that, that's always been the best part about any of these festivals. And unfortunately, I've never been to Bonnaroo. I've never been to Lock-In. I just, you know, if I, would, if, if, if I was 25 years younger, I'd sure I'd be going to all of them. But, you know, you, but I did go to Jazz Fest a couple of times. And I kind of look at Jazz Fest as like Lollapalooza for adults, right? And, you know, a little more sophisticated and <laughs> the food and everything else. But you go to these things or whatever. But you, what I love is when you get these mashups like you were talking about. To me, one of the greatest things I ever saw was Lockin. what was it, two years ago, when uh, uh, Trey came out and played with Tedeschi Trucks as they covered the Layla album. You know, and I'm thinking, this is one of the greatest albums of all time. There's nobody other than Derek Trucks who could channel Dwayne Allman. And why not have Trey up there, you know, playing the other part? And it's just, it, they're, they're there, why not? They get up and they do it. And, and, you know, to see that happen is amazing. But then uh, as, you're, as you're listing the bands that you were working with, and I love them all, the one that really does stand out to me uh, is Carl Denson. And I, I just love Carl Denson in a way that, you know, I love Warren Haynes. If, if he's playing, I want to go see him. It doesn't matter who, what, where, or how. I need to be there. And at Jazz Fest a couple of years ago, you were talking about the late night shows. The um, Densons, they were doing a late night show and it was a, a Allman Brothers tribute in some small theater in New Orleans. And it was late and, and I couldn't get my wife to go and I couldn't, but a few of us went. And when I got back to the hotel at four in the morning, she said, do me a favor, please just don't tell me that was the highlight of the show weekend. And I'm like, that was, I'm like, that was such the highlight of the weekend. I can't even tell you how amazing they were. He just blows me. They just come out and you think you're listening to the Allman Brothers. They were 
but but with their own style, really just, and, and what a nice guy. Uh, I have a friend who uh, hosted a big party out in San Francisco two years ago for his business, and he got Carl Denson to come play as the house band for the night. And my friend has a son who's actually helped us out on the show from time to time. Max Wellens, a good friend of the show. And uh, he was a, a, a just graduated from CU Boulder, and he's a saxophone player. And he was able to go up on stage and play a couple of songs. Carl brought him up and introduced him and gave him a solo. And my buddy, Alex, his father's like, has a tear in his eye. Here's one of my musical legends, and my son is playing with him on stage. It was just, it was really an incredible night. Well, that, that is incredible. And, and I will say from someone who has known him for many years and worked with him and been intimately involved with him, he is as nice as you think he is. That is, And that is no bullshit. And that's how he carries himself, whether he's on stage or off stage or wherever it is. And whether he's with the Rolling Stones or playing by himself. Right. With, with the Rolling Stones, you forget about that, that he toured with, you know, he was their sex guy for years. It's like well, he was about to go on tour with them again until COVID-19 shut down the, the world. They were launching on another tour. So, yeah. Yep. It, it, it's just incredible. I, I, I love him. And, you know, I, I would go, uh, go listen to him anywhere, anytime too. Well, I will say, my, and I have a very similar Carl Denson story, which happened in, 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 uh, at jazz fest as well. The very first time I ever saw the gray boy all-stars was in 1998 at, uh, the Howlin' Wolf, and at, you know, the show started at 2.30 or 3 a.m., and the sun was rising in the windows with, you know, 200 people still there just dancing, getting down, and they played the big payback. And that's the first time I really recognized Carl on lead vocals just, like, you know, singing payback. And, and I mean, it was, I stopped in my tracks and just stopped dancing to watch him and his performance. And I knew it's, I, I realized, you know, I've obviously that whole show was incredible, but that moment to me locked me in on like this, this guy is something special. He's in a whole world by himself and, uh, and oh boy. And, you know, then getting to know him over the years has, has really been a, a treat. And just like that for me is Tedeschi trucks. When I go to see a concert where Derek trucks is playing, I, I, I just focus on him. I, I, I mean, you know, I was too young. I missed Dwayne Allman. Um, you know, so to see a real a guy who really knows how to play slide and the way he plays it and so effortlessly and he doesn't want the spotlight. He's always kind of drifting to the back of the stage and, you know, he lets his wife take over. That's fine. She sings and is better looking than him anyway. But by God, can this get kid just and, and I love seeing the pictures of him playing with the Allman Brothers when he was 10 years old. Right. That to me yeah. is the amazing thing. You know, right. But if he's playing, I, my buddies and I, we go and we just focus I just have to, he's a, a talent. You can't miss he's it. as close as there will ever be to Dwayne Allman in real life. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Chewy, um, I'm sure you were at some of the shows I was at at Red Rocks with String Cheese and the Allman Brothers. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, when I was, so I went to school uh, at CU Boulder and uh, uh, started there in uh, uh, 1990. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, in 1990. And uh, and so I saw those you know those Red Rock shows uh, that they used to play every summer there, uh, the Allman Brothers, and uh, they and, and one of my memorable shows from the Allman Brothers at Red Rocks was they just put out that album Second Set, uh-huh. and right. I don't know if you remember, but like originally it got panned by the critics and everyone hated it, and like I couldn't stop listening to that, and still to this day when I put it on, sometimes it's beginning to end. I don't even listen to a song, you right. know. It's, it is an amazing album from beginning to end. And they played pretty much that entire album. 
And that, you know, listen, I think with all bands, you have that sort of, oh shit, I got, I got it moment. And uh, that was my, oh, I got it with the Allman Brothers. Because, you know, I listened to all the early tracks and everything and what was going on with Dwayne back in the day. And, you know, and, and obviously genius, but seeing them live uh, was something different. That's the moment I hit it. So, um, yeah, that String Cheese uh, Almond Brothers show might have been like 2006, and um, I was I took my younger son up there. He was like six years old at the time, and I was doing my rock and roll photojournalist gig at the time. So we were right down front, second row, center, Red Rocks, and um, just as the, I'm looking down in the front row, and there's all these little kids in the front row, and I'm saying, what the heck? Are all these little kids i've got my son who's six years old but what are all these little kids doing here <laughs> and a lady came out from the barn door of the uh, stage backstage with big um, stack of posters and crayons and she handed the posters to all the little kids including my son jack handed him a box of crayons if you remember the, they were switching off who would play first one right. night string cheese would play first the yeah. next night uh, almonds so this particular uh, night the almond brothers were playing first and they came out and laid down this blazing set might have been the set you're talking about and all the little kids are kneeling down on the benches at red rocks coloring <laughs> yeah it's and i still have that poster in my barn that's that's absolutely amazing and uh the show you're talking about uh seven nine two thousand four uh i think okay. is when they were there together uh but that you know i mean you pick up on so there's so many different themes to talk about here amongst all of this but just the family nature and the ability to be able to take your kids to experience all of this and the fact that you know when i was working with a lot of these different bands you know they're very family oriented bands for the most part right their their kids were out there their wives were out on the roads they really did recognize that it was the community it was the family uh, i always used to joke to my friends that i never got to be the tour manager for a you know a metal band that just you know partied and did a ton of drugs and flew private around the world. Uh, you know, I was I was very I was in that very family oriented bands and and what an amazing time uh, to be alive and experience that because that was right at the height of the jam band explosion and to be in the middle of it and be a part of it was something special. I I will, it's really amazing. You know, it's like being at Haight-Ashbury in the late 60s as, you know, that whole scene was, you know, really coming of age. And if you're in the right place at the right time and, you know, you have the, uh, the, the means and the ability and the talent to be able to take advantage of it, you know, good for you. That's, but, you know, speaking about the family nature and about the Grateful Dead, and, you know, one of the things I always liked about the Grateful Dead is uh, that you know, we always used to joke that they were a band that never failed to not live up to the moment, you know, and like to never quite be aware of everything that was going on around them or, you know, they would just go out and play. Yeah, hopefully if they played uh, New Minglewood, Bobby would get the city right when it came to that point in time. But every now and then, you know, these guys would just really click in a way uh, that I thought was amazing. And, and, you know, you might even be able to, to speak to this a little bit in terms of what it takes to pull something like this off. But, uh, you know, this show, this show airs, uh, on, I think it's, uh, Monday, the 29th or the 30th. Um, and in fact, uh, yeah, the 29th. So just a few days later, this coming Thursday, April 1st, April fool's day, we all think of it. And, and I had heard this story for years and went back and confirmed it that in 1980 on April Fool's Day, the Dead did a show at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, and they came out and they opened with Promised Land. Nothing strange there, except that if you were sitting in the audience and looked up on the stage, 
You saw Jerry and Brent playing the drums, Bobby playing the keyboard, Phil on lead guitar, Mickey on rhythm guitar, uh, <laughs> Bill on bass, and a vocal combination of Bill and Mickey trying to sing and Bobby eventually uh, uh, jumping in and trying to help them out too. And it, 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 it either sounds like something hopelessly terrible or actually not so bad considering that you know none of them were playing their standard instrument. I think Phil Lesh could play any instrument he wanted. But the rest of them, I'm not so sure about. But uh, you can go online uh, on YouTube or other places and download the audio of it at least, and it's it's a good listen and it's really funny. But it, it, you know, I, whenever I see that as a deadhead, what I just liked about that was it made me feel special to be at that show because it's like they took time to think. Today's April 1st. We're going to actually do something to recognize that it's April 1st, and you know that's kind of a fun thing to do. Well, I certainly can can talk to that a little bit. I think. A majority of bands that I worked for over the years, no matter what city they were in, they tried to give their best every single night. They recognized that all the people were coming out. They were the party in the town that night. They were the show that night, and they needed to leave it all out on stage. And to your point, you know, some nights were better than others, but they never went out. I, 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 I you know, can count on one hand out of the thousands and thousands of shows that I tour manage, I can count on one hand the number of nights a band I worked for mailed it in. Uh, and, you know, and so I think and it's certainly in the jam band scene at that time, they tried to bring it every night. And what to, you know, and also along with that, you know, being a which was familiar in the jam band scenes, whether it was New Year's or Halloween or April Fool's or Fourth of July or whatever the night was or something special or being in a certain city and wanting to play something that was specific to that city or that town. I think that that was very, you know, forward on the mind. And, and you know, a majority of bands as well would always take suggestions from their crew or their tour manager uh, about cool things that they might do in that town or songs that they might cover of bands that were from that town or, you know, other things to sort of pay homage to either the date, the city, uh, the people that were there and, uh, and try to make that uh, super special for the people that were in the room. Uh, and, you know, and that, you know, certainly the string cheese incident uh, and, and, you know, Fish being another one of those bands always try to get goofy and be really creative in those ways. Uh, and, you know, I've definitely seen plenty of shows where Michael Travis will go out and play bass and Keith will try to play drums and Kane goes and tries to play keyboard. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, fans love it, right? I mean, it's still what, because it's a moment in time. You're there for that moment. And if you get to see it, it's special. It might not sound good on the recording, but if you're there live, it's a music moment that you won't forget. No, I think that's true. And, you know, and, and to get to see those moments and be a part of them. But, you know, when, when I talk about, you know, and I, and I joke about, you know, whether the dead were always aware of, you know, everything that was going on around them. And, and one story that I always come back to, and, and Jim and I have shared this story before because it does involve Red Rocks. But I went out there with uh, some of my friends in 1984 to see them. And it, it was an incredible three-night run at Red Rocks. And it all capped off with the final night, which was really one of the best shows they put on that I ever saw. Uh, they broke out Dear Mr. Fantasy and uh, just uh, just an incredible night. We had bumped into some old friends from Ann Arbor and who set us up with some fun things to make the whole evening very uh, memorable. And they came out for their encore at the end. And this is it, the last night they're wrapping up. And Bobby comes up to the microphone and like a, a schoolboy who's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Well, you know, 200 years ago today, uh, the, uh, the, the U.S. flag was adopted. The Stars and Stripes were adopted as our flag. So... 
For those of you who are here on Friday night, sorry about that, because they had just played U.S. Blues on Friday night for the encore. But now they realize, no, wait, today's flag. That's what we're going to play it again. So sorry if you saw it once. We kind of we'll play it. The, but, you know, but even that was kind of like we all, I mean, we were just getting a kick out of it. You know, I, I was from the school that if Jerry said anything, it was a momentous moment and we all loved it, right? right. So, you know, just the fact that they would be talking and you felt like you were interacting with them was always a good thing. Right, absolutely. I, I concur 100%. I think all the banter and all the movement on stage and anything that makes a show special. And by, by the way, that goes to, you know, today when I go with my wife to see Adele, I still think the exact same thing, you know, and it doesn't matter who I'm seeing just as being a fan of live music, but the, the dead and the jam bands are the ones who really made me aware of those special music moments and how you're interacting or they're interacting with their fan and that part of circular energy that you are a, you're a live part of the show with them and how they're playing and how you're giving that energy back to them and how they're giving it back to the crowd and it just goes around and around and so you know if if by them talking or doing anything quirky makes that energy better it really pays off i think in the show overall as one of my good friends uh, said walking out of a show one time he goes jim there were moments when the music and the audience and the band, we were all on the same page. Yeah, those are special moments. That's why we go to 100 shows for those moments, right? Because you, you, they're, they're, sometimes they're, they're rare, but when they hit, boy, there's nowhere else you'd rather be. Um, Chewy, we're running out of time, but before we go, yeah. I would be very, very remiss if I did not comment on something I saw in your background, and I need to confirm that you are, in fact, an Eagle Scout. Uh, I am an Eagle Scout. That is true. And I can ask you that because I, too, am an Eagle Scout. Yes, and, right. you know, these days, you know, doesn't right. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of us out there anymore, you know, or at least ones who are willing to fess up to it. But, I, you know, to me, Boy Scouts was really kind of an interesting time because I loved being outdoors and I love that whole part of it. Um, and it just so happened that I happened to wind up in a troop. Uh, you know, with a bunch of older kids who were very advanced when it came to things like smoking and stuff like that. And, you know, so the, the Boy Scouts was a, a, a learning um, thing for me in, in more than one way. Well, I didn't quite get the same background as, as you did in the Boy Scouts, but I love it so much. And I, you know, growing up in Utah, both Southern and Northern Utah, uh, we're both the Eagle Scouts and National Outdoor Leader Knowles and stuff went sort of hand in hand. So, you know, a lot of my friends, we're both have both of those certifications that we hang on our wall and so just being outdoor wilderness sort of survival and and what the you know what the scouts and eagle scouts taught uh as far as that went was really really special to me so much so that you know i mean i am a diehard progressive liberal you know grateful dead fan weed smoker uh but i want my kids to go to scouts and, and be eagle scouts too. you know i love it so much i had so right. much it gave me so much joy that I want them to experience that too. No, I agree. I, you know, I think in that respect, you know, it can be a great thing. You know, it, it really does, you know, teach a lot of good things like that. And, you know, and I have to tell you, my mom was always the one who said to me, she really, you know, was my biggest, you know, supporter at the end. And, you know, you'll always be able to tell people you're an Eagle Scout. And there, there was a period of time in my life when it wasn't the first thing, you know, that I would list at the top of my resume until I started working with one of the big firms in Chicago. And I'm having lunch one day with one of the name partners with a few other attorneys. He wanted to meet us all. And he started talking about how he was an Eagle Scout. And so I said, well, I'm an Eagle Scout too. The next thing I knew, I was getting a lot of work from him. And, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, you know, there, there is this kind of fraternity out there among people who have, 
who've gone down that road before, and it's you know kind of nice to find them. Well, I think I think like you know your college degree, whether you're working in what you graduated in or not, is is, is secondary. It's the fact that you can accomplish a task and go from A to B. And Eagle Scout is very similar. You had to have stayed with something for ten years of your life and accomplished it at a very early yeah. age when most kids don't give a shit about really anything. And so I, you know, I think that that's what it really says more than anything is that you have a dedication to see something through and see it through to the end. And it's not, it's not an easy task. And so I think for that reason, uh, you know, that that's where that, that camaraderie sort of comes from a little bit. And it's funny because my friends, you know, some of them make fun of me, but other ones are, you know, like, holy shit, Chewie's an Eagle Scout. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> right. Well, no, I, I mean, my buddies who I knew me from growing up knew all about it. But, you know, by the time I went to Michigan and, you know, it would be the kind of thing you'd be sitting at an intermission at the dead show and everybody's minds would be somewhere and somehow something would come up and I'd say, oh, I'm an Eagle Scout. And everybody would turn to me like, really? You, <laughs> tell me about that. How, how does that work? And it's like, you know, OK, but well, it turns out I can tie the night. I can tie the knots to the top of the car to make sure nothing falls off. I would just, or make sure the amps don't fall down on the guys on the stage. So, right. right either way, it's a good skill to know, right? People say, how do you start a fire? I, there's a lot of skills I learned in scouting and as an Eagle Scout that I still use today. And certainly a ton of them to tie it back into this entire story. A ton of them that I use, you know, when I was out on the road as a tour manager, just organization, skill sets, you know, yep. the ability to, you know, keep everything tidy, backpack, living out of a backpack. Uh, you know, my right. love of flashlights, knives, tools. Uh, all that stuff. Very cool. That's just yeah. great. I think that's going to be a good way to end the show this week. It is. And uh, Chewy, one last time uh, before we uh, before we hop off here, please uh, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you if they'd like to talk to you. If you have a web page or an email address, what works best for you? Uh, I mean, literally, I Twitter as at Chewcifer, C H E W C I P H E R. I am at Chewcifer on pretty much every social media handle. I don't really do Facebook that much. I, you know, I, I decided to delete it from my life four or five years ago and have never looked back. And by the way, I would, I'm telling everyone to do that. Uh, but yes, our the website is also organics.com. All those emails come to me as well. Uh, and so, you know, please if, feel free to be in touch. Uh, if anyone's interested in actually using the product and trying it for the first time, uh, you know, I will set up a, in fact, let's just do it right now. Uh, if you use code live more L I V E M O R E, uh, you'll take 20% off, uh, and everyone can save a little bit of money. Uh, Love that. I'm writing it down. Out. So I'll make sure to set that code up as soon as we get off this. Fantastic. Very good. Thank you for being our guest this week. So this is Jim Marty saying goodbye for the deadhead cannabis show. Jim, thank you. Have a, uh, a great week yourself out there in Colorado. Uh, Chewy, this was a real pleasure. Uh, you're the kind of guest we could talk to all day, and we're probably going to have to have you back sometime. Uh, to all the listeners, I'm also giving a, uh, a goodbye from Rob Hunt, who uh, was kind enough in the midst of all of his busy cannabis work to take a few minutes to hop on and, and chat with us and uh, ask his old buddy a couple of questions. Um, but we thank everybody for listening to our show today. We'll look forward to listening to you next week on the way out. I'd just like to give a shout out to my son, Matthew, uh, who is fighting off an appendicitis in Boston. Hang in there, son. I'm sure you'll do just fine. Listen to some Grateful Dead. And for everyone else out there, uh, please enjoy your cannabis responsibly. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you all.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.